0: The book of Galatians is explosive. Label it the TNT of the Bible. This short letter blew up erroneous doctrines that were threatening the faith of a group of new believers. It blasted away bondage and created a fallout of love and liberty. Hey, Galatians is the bomb. The book of Galatians gripped the heart of a medieval monk named Martin Luther. And actually transformed his way of relating to God. It became the catalyst for a revival that history now calls the Protestant Reformation. I love how Luther wrote of this book. He wrote of Galatians as he would his wife. He says, this epistle is my epistle. To it I am as it were in wedlock. Galatians is my Catherine. Proving that all great preachers are married to a lady named Catherine. One thing is for sure, I believe all Christians should be married to the message of this book. We begin, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Ancient Galatia is today central Turkey. The original Galatians were immigrants from France. Julius Caesar once commented on the Galatians. He said, they are fickle. They are fond of change. They are not to be trusted. And that's the type of people we find in Acts chapters 13 and 14 when Paul first takes the gospel within the borders of Galatia. Remember, it was at the gate of Lystra that Paul healed a lame man. At first, the superstitious Galatians assumed that Paul was a Greek god. They tried to offer Paul a sacrifice. Later, these same fickle folks were swayed by Paul's enemies. They took up rocks to stone him. They tried to make him the sacrifice. He narrowly escaped. And In a sense, rocks were still being thrown at the apostle Paul as he wrote this letter to Galatians. Certain Jews were threatened by the grace that Paul preached. And when they couldn't kill him, they tried to assassinate his character and throw shade on his apostleship. Where were his credentials? Who is this man, Paul? Who appointed him? This was why he introduced, his, introduced himself, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Paul's commission came not from a man, or a church, or a denomination, but from Jesus himself. Shortly after Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain had started, I went to the local Baptist church to ask if we could use their baptistry. We had some people that were getting saved, and we needed a place to baptize them. But when I went to pick up the key, the pastor asked me, he said, the deacons want to know, are you ordained? I said, well, I guess so. God's blessing our ministry. People are getting saved. No. Do you have an official ordination? It wasn't enough that God was using me. They wanted to see the paperwork. The irony is that a wall full of ordination certificates don't really mean a whole lot. All they really amount to is wallpaper unless God's hand is on a person's life. God's ordination is the only one that counts. And that's the one Paul appeals to here. And he greets them, grace to you and peace. Here's Paul's familiar greeting. Grace and peace have been called the Siamese twins of the New Testament. You know, this term, Siamese twin, refers to siblings conjoined from birth. Siamese twins share a vital organ and remain connected for life as a result. Did you know the first twins referred to as Siamese were Chang and Ng Bunker. They were born in Thailand in the early 1800s and they came to America. And they married sisters, by the way. They ended up fathering 21 kids. And you think you got strange family dynamics. (laughs) But likewise, grace and peace stay joined together. You can't have one without the other. You can't enjoy peace with God without first knowing the grace of God. And grace, rightly understood, always produces peace. These two, grace and peace, work together to bear fruit in believing hearts. And then verse 3, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins, that He might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And in most of his letters, this is where Paul inserts the prayer that he's been praying for the church. But here, Paul's heart is too heavy in regards to the Galatians. There's a burning issue that he needs to address, and so he jumps into it. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you, in the grace of Christ, to a different gospel." Now remember, the Galatians were gullible and they were fickle people, thus they were prone to false doctrine. Paul says that they were turning away from the gospel of grace. The phrase literally means defecting to the other side. The verb tense implies that they were not there yet, but they were getting close. Their faith was vacillating. They were losing their grip. On God's grace. They were being lured away by a different gospel. You know, if you study world religions, you'll identify hundreds, if not thousands, of various gospels. But I suggest there are really only two types of religion there is the hand of man reaching upwards, and there is the hand of God reaching downward. All religions except one can be summarized as that upward reach, man's attempts to please God. They emphasize keeping rules or performing rituals. It's self-reliance. But Christianity is God's hand reaching down to man. God is reaching to us through Christ, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. This is the true gospel. In fact, Paul says this different gospel is really not a gospel at all. It's not good news. Verse 7, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. See, the Galatians were buying into this distorted version of truth. And I believe Satan still distorts God's truth. He does so in three ways. At times, he twists it. At other times, he subtracts from it And still at other times, he adds to it. At times, he even does all three. See, Satan can twist the interpretation of a verse. He makes it say what it was never intended to say. Thus the old adage, a text without a context becomes a pretext. Satan is good at taking verses out of context. Satan also likes to subtract from the truth. He dilutes its meaning. Tozer once said, Some have so watered down the gospel that if it were a medicine, it could not cure us, and if it were a poison, it would not harm us. A gospel without repentance of sin is no gospel at all. And at times, Satan even adds to the truth. This was the strategy that was threatening the Galatians. False teachers called Judaizers agreed that salvation was by grace through faith, but... And oh, be careful of those buts. You need to read the fine print. But they added to the cross. See, here was their spiel. Yes, Jesus died to forgive us. But if you really want to please God, you need more. And they had a long list of add-ons. Mandatory do's and don'ts. The bottom line is that faith in Christ was really not enough. It was up to us to add to His work. This is what Paul calls a different gospel. It was not a gospel at all. A wise old pastor once advised a young apprentice. He said, preach a full gospel, Christ and nothing less. Preach a plain gospel, Christ and nothing more. And preach a pure gospel, Christ and nothing else. Well, Paul continues in verse 8. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preached any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And this is strong language. The Greek word translated accursed is anathema. It means damned to hell. Paul couldn't have refuted this with more force. And he repeats the message to make it even more emphatic. He says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Remember, he said, even if an angel from heaven, if an angel dressed in white robes with shining lights came and sat on the foot of your bed and preached a gospel different than the grace Paul had delivered to them, then let that angel be damned. Boy, if Joseph Smith had listened to Paul when he heard the baloney from the angel Moroni Millions of folks wouldn't be headed to hell today under the law of Mormonism. If Muhammad hadn't listened to a supposed angel, there would be no Islam. Paul knew angels come in two varieties, faithful and fallen. And fallen angels, or as we call them, demons, specialize in inspiring different gospels. This is why we need to be firmly grounded in the truth of God's grace. You see, to recognize another gospel, you first have to know the true gospel. This is why it's important for God's people to become educated in God's word. Did you hear about the woman who bought a pet parrot to keep her company? But she couldn't get the parrot to talk. That was the problem. She went back to the pet store and she complained to the owner. He said, well, does your parrot have a mirror? parrots love mirrors in their cage. And so she bought a mirror. She took it home, set it up in the cage, but the parrot still wouldn't talk. Well, she returned to the pet store again and complained. This time the owner says, well, does your parrot have a ladder? Parrots love those little ladders. They can run up and down. And a happy parrot's a talkative parrot. And so she purchased a ladder. She took it home. She put it in the cage. But again, not a peep from the parrot she went back a third time this time the owner said have you tried a swing parrots love those swings you know get him swinging and he'll talk up a storm so she bought her parrot a swing well two days later she returned to the pet store when the owner asked her about the parrot the woman announced that he was dead the man was shocked he asked the woman he said well did your parrot ever say anything before he died the woman answered said yes Just before he died, in a soft, faint, weak little whisper, he asked me, Don't they sell any food at that pet store? And so often churches today think we need mirrors. We need pop psychology and introspection to look into and see ourselves and understand ourselves. Or we need ladders, step-by-step rules and rituals and self-help. Or we need swings, experiential, feelings-based religion. They try to entertain God's people with mirrors and ladders and swings. But friends, what God's people really can't live without is the Word of God. We need to feed ourselves on God's Word. Well, Verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? Paul's stoning in Lystra was proof his goal was to obey God, not to please men. For if I still pleased men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Living the Christian life requires making choices that are not always popular. I'm sure you've discovered this. And if my goal is to be well-liked and fashionable and accepted at all costs, it's only a matter of time before I'll compromise. We need to settle this issue in our hearts before it comes up in our lives. Who do we intend to please? One author puts it this way, It is a great freedom to know who owns you. If you do not know to whom you belong, you are apt to be the pawn of anyone whose identity is strong enough to overwhelm your own sense of inadequacy. This is so true. Who owns you? Who is it you intend to please? Is it men or is it God? Verse 11, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel Paul preached was not his own idea. Rather than a result of his own imagination, his gospel came by God-given revelation. He says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation. Paul's gospel wasn't produced by his imagination, neither was it the result of Jewish education. He sure wasn't taught God's grace in the Jewish yeshivas that he attended. His former rabbis were upholders of the law, not dispensers of grace. He adds in verse 14, And being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers, the gospel didn't come to Paul through imagination, education, or perspiration. He was exceedingly zealous, he says. He worked hard at climbing the ladder of Judaism. Getting rung by rung up that ladder of legalism. He worked hard at it. But that's not where he found God's amazing grace. Verse 15 tells us, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me. See, the gospel came to Paul not through imagination, education, perspiration, but through revelation. God revealed His Son in Paul. And notice God's plan for Paul's life started long before he came to Christ. Even before he was born, from his mother's womb, he says, God had a purpose for Paul. And this is true of every human. God values human life, and He has a plan for our lives. Even from our conception, this is why we need to fight for the life of the unborn. Now, remember, on the road to Damascus, Jesus revealed himself to Paul, but here he mentions a different experience when Jesus revealed was revealed in Paul. This may have happened while he was still blinded from that bright light or even later during his days in Arabia, but truly, the wonder of Christianity is that it's more than a truth to be learned, but it's a living Lord to be experienced. Jesus wants to live in our hearts, Christ was revealed in Paul, and he wants to be revealed in you. So that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This was God's purpose for Paul's life. Paul always loved the Jews, but taking the gospel to the Gentiles was the calling of his life from the start. For after God calls him, he tells us what happened. He says, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus." And This is interesting to me. When Paul was first saved, he didn't rush to join a Bible study or to teach a Bible study. He wanted to seek the Lord personally and privately. He went out into the wilderness of Arabia. He wanted to seek God before he consulted with other people, just goes to prove God always homeschools his kids. Obviously, I like pastors and sermons. I like them. I'm one of them. They can be helpful, but often we spend so much time listening to men that we never slow down and listen to God. You know, it's unhealthy when folks can tell you what the pastor said on Sunday, but not what God said on Monday. If we look to men and not to God, we get duplication, not inspiration. See, what makes an authentic Christian isn't imagination or education or perspiration or duplication, but a personal revelation from God. God revealed Christ in Paul. Years ago, there was a sheep named Dolly that was cloned by a British scientist. You probably heard about it. The experiment was hailed as a scientific breakthrough It raised all kinds of ethical dilemmas regarding cloning. But I'll never forget thinking, hey, this is no big deal. The church has been cloning sheep for centuries. (laughs) Rather than producing genuine, thinking, spirit-led believers, so often churches are full of cookie-cutter Christians. They're stamped out of the same mold rather than shaped personally by the Holy Spirit. Christian musician Steve Taylor once wrote a song. He called it, I Want to Be a Clone. Here's a snippet. I'd gone through so much other stuff that walking down the aisle was tough, but now I know it's not enough. I want to be a clone. I asked the Lord into my heart. They said that was the way to start, but now you've got to play the part. I want to be a clone. They told me that I'd fall away unless I followed what they say. Who needs a Bible anyway? I want to be a clone. So now I see the whole design. The church is an assembly line. The parts are there. I'm feeling fine. I want to be a clone. I've learned enough to stay afloat, but not so much I rocked the boat. I'm glad they shoved it down my throat. I want to be a clone. And then the bridge that ties it all together. Because if you want to be one of his, you've got to act like one of us. Paul was nobody's clone. And he'd never expect us to be either. See, the goal of the Christian is to be conformed into the image of Jesus, not the image contrived by some man. Verse 18, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him fifteen days. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall for that meeting. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, Now concerning the things which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. And apparently some of the false teachers were accusing Paul of lying. He reaffirmed, I do not lie. Well, he continues piecing his life together after his conversion. He says, afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us, now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Paul himself was the surest validation of the gospel he preached. The grace of God had transformed his life, had turned him from a persecutor into a preacher. And then chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Now, this was after Paul's first missionary journey. Paul took Barnabas, his Jewish sidekick, from Jerusalem, and he took Titus, one of his Gentile converts, and he made his way to the church at Jerusalem. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. And here's a good preamble for all that Paul says later in this chapter. He's going to be unbudging in his stand for grace. But understand, his staunch conviction was forged by an honest, humble reflection. At the time, the church in Jerusalem was the hub for Christianity. And Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem and explain to the leaders there about the gospel he had brought to the Gentiles. See, Paul didn't serve the Lord in a ministerial vacuum. He wanted the help of others. He went to to Jerusalem, quote, lest he had run in vain. You know, sometimes Christians in ministry get isolated. We start to think that our way is the only way, not Paul. He wasn't afraid to concede that he could be wrong. He knew his gospel was true, but he was open to the possibility that that was something that he had missed. And thus he went to Jerusalem to bounce his ideas off the brethren. You know, it's always good to bounce your ideas off another brother. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. When he got to Jerusalem, he found that the Jews there were trying to force Titus who was a Gentile, to conform to Old Testament rituals. They wanted Titus to surrender his freedom in Christ and embrace Jewish tradition and be circumcised. This was not what Paul expected to find among the Jerusalem leaders. It was obvious to him that the church had been infiltrated. And Paul tells us by whom. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. This phrase, false brethren, is the Greek word delphus." It's a compound word, pseudo, which means bogus, or delphus, which means brother. Bogus brethren had infiltrated the church. The New English Bible translates the phrase, sham Christians. See, Paul was a defender of the faith. These guys were pretenders of the faith. They were probably Pharisees who had snuck into the circle. They may even have professed Christ, thought they were Christians, but they spewed a dangerous mixture of faith plus law. We know this bunch as the infamous Judaizers. In Acts 13 and 14, these Jews followed Paul while he was in Galatia. Now they follow him all the way to Jerusalem. Always remember, the people most dangerous to the body of Christ aren't the defiant blasphemers or the ardent atheists. Our worst enemy is the bogus brother. It's the fellow with a mixture of grace and grunt. Lethal is the guy who teaches you can obtain God's favor by grace, but then you have to maintain God's favor through this or that. Turn this guy loose in your church, and one day you'll wake up to a divided church. Playgrounds have bullies, and sadly, so do churches. And over time, what happens is that the bully's version of righteousness becomes the dividing line between the spiritual haves and the have-nots. He or she determines who loves God and who's carnal. The rules they deem as important, the rituals they decide must be kept, become the badge everyone thinks they need to wear if they're going to be labeled spiritual. A spiritual bully puts off airs that will kill, pompous airs, that will kill the life and growth of a church. You see, it's grace that creates a mood of acceptance. It's grace that allows folks to grow at their own pace. It's grace that keeps people open to God rather than stifled by their own failures. Let's not budge an inch when it comes to God's grace. We need to make grace the modus operandi in every area of Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. In verse 5, Paul refuses to give in to these Judaizers. He says, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And don't underestimate the pressure Paul was under to capitulate. To a Jew, Titus getting circumcised was a minor concession. Besides, the church was facing a major rift. And I can hear the peacenicks squawking. Paul, stop being so divisive. You're threatening our unity. And yet, Paul understood the one thing more important than our unity is the truth. He discerned that at this critical moment, truth was more important than truce. You know, the legalist appears so sincere, so disciplined, outwardly righteous, and you think, how can I oppose him? The ritualist has the weight of hundreds of years of tradition on his side. Who am I to argue with him? Yet if the people who know better don't stand up for the grace of God, the legalists will take control. They'll create a spiritual bondage and wreak havoc in the church. A news analyst, Elmer Davis, once said of America, this will remain the land of the free only so long as it is the home of the brave. So it is in the church. And then verse 6 tells us, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. It seems Paul expected help from the elders in his confrontation with these Judaizers, but they took a back seat. It wasn't until the smoke had cleared and the winner declared that these people went public in their support of Paul. These men were apostles. They had a name, they had reputation, they had stature. But in the end, they left Paul unimpressed. Notice what he concludes. God shows personal favoritism to no man, for those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Paul realized he was on his own. You know, I'll never forget when God laid it on my heart to start a church. I went to a mentor of mine for confirmation. Dan DeHaan was a respected man of God at the time. Dan... He started out cautioning me. I could tell he wasn't so hip on my idea. But it was as if the Lord stopped him in midstream. For he said to me, he said, Sandy, there comes a time when you've got to start listening to God for yourself. Only God can call this shot. How wise he was. I've discovered you don't really begin to trust the Lord until you turn loose of everybody else's hand. Catherine Jensen puts it this way. Life is like being on a mule team. Unless you're the lead mule, all the scenery looks about the same. Verse 7. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And here's the realization that saved Christianity from schism. God gives to different folks different callings to reach different people groups. God used Peter's Jewish heritage to reach the Jews. He used Paul's familiarity with Gentile custom to reach the Greeks. But one approach was no better than the other. Both were used by God to reach different people. And this is still how God works. Some churches are used to reach a family crowd. Other churches relate to the biker crowd. God calls each of us to reach those people in our own niche. And then verse 9. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars. And these were the big dogs, remember? This was Jesus' inner circle. Peter, James, and John. They were the ones there on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were the ones in the Garden of Gethsemane when no one else was invited. But when those who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. After his showdown with the Judaizers, the men that Paul came to Jerusalem respecting ended up respecting him. In the final analysis, labels and titles and reputations didn't really mean much. And you know they still don't. They were certainly no substitute for courage and calling and conviction. Over the years, I've seen people sashay into our church thinking they were somebody. They wanted to impose their brand of spirituality on the life of Calvary Chapel. They thought that they were going to straighten us all out. They wanted to body slam the body with their legalism. But we resisted then and we're going to resist again. This is a house that grace has built. The church is the true grace land. And with God's help, let's keep it that way. And as Paul discovered, the battle for God's grace is never over. For it requires vigilance. Verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Peter, what are you doing? Peter had forgotten the lessons God taught him when the Roman soldier Cornelius was saved by faith and faith alone. See, God no longer divides men along racial or religious lines as clean and unclean. Today, the only distinction God makes among us is whether we're in Christ or not. In Antioch, Peter had lived by this truth. He hung out with the Gentile believers even though he was a Jew. That is, until the James gang showed up. James and his posse showed up from Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, Peter felt like he needed to court the Jews. And so he ate only with Jews, not Gentiles. He was acting as if the Jews were seated in first class and the Gentiles were stuck in coach. As if Christianity had a first and second string. And the rest of the Jews who played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy." And this is why you can never go soft on legalism. It spreads like wildfire. Notice this, even Barnabas. Barnabas was influenced by Peter's hypocrisy. Barnabas was Paul's sidekick. He had seen God work among the Gentiles. He should have known better. And yet the deception of legalism was so subtle that even Paul's most trusted ally lost his grip on God's grace. Realize legalism has a definite appeal. The idea that I can do it. That we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It flatters our pride, doesn't it? A legalist can measure himself against others. He can point to his own self-righteousness. Whereas it's humbling to admit that there's nothing I can do and trust in the merits of someone else, that is Jesus. Paul continues in verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Peter was a Jew, but he didn't keep the law. Why is he expecting Gentiles to keep the law when he didn't do it himself? Paul calls Peter out for his hypocrisy. And understand, this took guts. Understand this. Paul went toe-to-toe with Pentecost Pete. I mean, Peter had been used by God. You recall the Lord himself gave Simon the nickname Peter or Rock. Imagine strapping on the gloves and going a few rounds with Rocky Balboa. There's an old adage, a famous name never justifies an infamous act. Paul wasn't intimidated by even a pillar of the church like Peter. For when a man is wrong, he's wrong. I don't care who he is. Paul didn't shy away from confrontation. He got in Peter's face for the sake of God's grace. And then verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. Recall this wonderful word, justified. It means just as if I'd never sinned. And so here's the gospel, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Because I put my faith in God's Son, God chooses to treat me as if I'd never sinned, even though I have and do and will. Guys, this is raging, bountiful, extravagant love. Can you you believe this is how God treats us? If we believe in Christ, we're justified. Hey, you can try to force open the door to God's blessing with your good works and your strenuous effort, but the door won't budge. Or you can put your faith in Jesus and hear the tumblers turn. Instantly, the door swings open and blessings fall out and love pours down. It's all due to God's grace. And our willingness to believe. And Then verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. In other words, it's possible for a Christian to shoot themselves in the foot. We can undermine grace. God is treating us as if we've never sinned, but we can treat ourselves as if we have. God is loving you, and drawing you, and forgiving you, and even blessing you, and you're still beating yourself up over the guilt from past sins. It's self-condemnation. God sets us free from rules and standards we can't possibly keep, yet if we return to those rules, we invite back the guilt that comes with them. Don't return to prison once you've been set free. We're going to learn that again in this letter. And then, verse 19: For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. Paul considered himself a widower to the law. His relationship with the law was over. He had died to the law, he had died to the rules. Like oil and water, like honey and vinegar. Like hot summer days in chocolate bars, law and grace just don't mix. It's one or the other. And going forward, Paul says, I have died to the law, and I am all about living by grace from now on. And you should be too. For he tells us how grace works. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul lived what has been called the exchanged life. We die with Christ and Jesus lives in us. This is the life available to every Christian. See, Paul knew that a miracle occurs when we become a Christian. We are crucified with Christ, and then Jesus comes to live in us. His death and resurrection play out in us. Thus, rather than you live for Christ by keeping a set of standards, your job is to trust Jesus to do His living in you. The life Paul lived was by faith and the power of another, and this is how we should live. Are you trying your best to live up to that standard, or are you letting Jesus live his life through you? There's a difference. As Paul puts it here, he lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, who's doing the living in your life? Is it you trying and trying and trying to do or be or say what's right? Or are you trusting the risen Christ? To live his righteousness through you. I hope you're trusting. Paul concludes chapter 2. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. In other words, if you could be good enough for God on your own, if salvation could have come any other way, don't you think God would have spared his only son? Certainly he would. To say that a man can be saved apart from the blood of Jesus is to diminish the sacrifice Jesus made for us. Jesus died because that is the only way we could be saved. There are many issues on which Christians should take a stand, but none, and I mean none, are as important as God's matchless and amazing grace.